if we didn't adjust quick, if we were stuck in the in, in high levels of multiple bureaucracy, we'd have died. Our sales were plummeting fast. You can't survive if you move like an elephant when there's a lot of cheetahs. You need to be nimble out there. All right, everybody, this is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Mitch Goldberg, founder, CEO, and visionary at the SurgeMed Group of Companies. Based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, but with people and facilities all over the world, SurgeMed companies manufacture and distribute a diverse range of medical devices, surgical products, and equipment to over 70 different countries. Mitch started working at age 12 alongside his uncle doing punch and die work in factories. That understandably inspired him to start his first business, importing products from China, no less, at the ripe old age of 13. After running it successfully for several years, he sold the business at 17 to refocus on his grades, paid for school, and bought a car. After school, he briefly pursued a more traditional career in finance with a Fortune 500 company before seeing an opportunity in the med device industry and launching what would become SurgeMed in 1992, thus fulfilling his lifelong desire to, quote, do my own thing. Mitch, thank you for being here. I'm very grateful. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that introduction. Yeah, very nice. My great pleasure. It made me excited just thinking about this conversation. <laughs> so. I want you to go back to the very earliest days of your entrepreneurial journey, your journey to be a worker, uh, first of all, and walk us through the journey to get where you are today. Well, you know, it's actually really funny is that I started working in my uncle's factory and 35 degrees centigrade weather in a factory. I realized early on I didn't want to I didn't want to work in a factory. But he, I did learn a lot working in a factory. And he was importing from China. Uh, when importing from China was a challenge, it wasn't as it is today. You know, people don't realize how, you know, you, you were blazing the Wild West back then going to China. It wasn't just, mm -hmm. you know, Googling and finding things. And I saw him importing. And he used to bring back these great trade magazines, Hong Kong Trade Development Council. I can't believe I remember that, HKTDC. And it was, it looked like a, a shopping uh, magazine. And I saw some pretty cool gadgets. And my uncle helped me coordinate it, communicate by telex, not fax, telex machine. And he helped finance me, he loaned me my first $1,200. And I bought $1,200 of these torch lights. And people saw them, I showed them around to friends, brought them to schools, everyone bought them. Then I had the crazy idea, what about if I advertise? And went ahead and found myself uh, locking in the back of the TV Guide magazine, which for those that don't know what that is, that was the way you found what to watch on TV. So I secured the back page, which is, I had to wait about two, three months to get it. They allowed me to do one test run and I sold out all my product within, I'm gonna say about two weeks. And then I realized I had something there and I built a whole uh, direct marketing business. Had I had, you know, maybe Bezos says foresight of maintaining and, and <laughs> what I had going on, but we didn't have the internet or the power to distribution that, that exists today. But I quickly built up a, a pretty good card deck of direct mail customers, which back in, you know, mm. in, in the early 80s had value because people that bought by mail were a very special group of people. And I can tell you during COVID, a lot of us who are buying from Amazon today 
never thought about buying so much from Amazon until COVID. It was more of a novelty as opposed to a standard. So from that point, I was able to build a regular base of business with the marketing clientele, the direct marketing clientele, and a company called Canada Direct Marketing approached me about buying my list. And I'll tell you honestly, at this point, my grades were slipping. My parents were happy that I was making all this money, but they were thinking of my future. And they, without forcing me, because my parents were very good at that, I think most parents, if you force, you do the opposite. They gave me some good encouragement and they said they they would allow me to pursue any dream I wanted, but I decided I have to focus on school. And I found that I was able to sell my little direct, which is in a gray Cardex box. You know, that little Cardex box turned out to be worth about $35,000. And that that was a lot more than my father was making at the time. And I sold it and that bought a car, put myself through university and didn't need a part-time job. That's awesome. What year was this, the, the year that you sold the company? The year I sold the company was 1979, I felt like I had to interject that for the listeners who don't know what a telex is and don't recall what the TV guide was. This was back when we actually had to get up to change the channel on our televisions, right, Mitch? Yeah, or if you had kids, your kids were in the remote control. <laughs> that, that's, Fa- they were the, the remote control, said, that's right. Channel 12 on. And that we were remote controls. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay, so you go back to school, you get your grades back on track, you get through school, you take a job working for a bigger company as a financial analyst. What lit the entrepreneurial spark again? Again, it was along the same lines. I worked really hard. I was working at, can I say the company name? Of course. Yeah, I worked for Seagram's, the alcohol company. Oh, sure. Wine and Spirits. Had a great career trajectory going on there. I was there for about for a little over three years, and you know I was first in, last out all the time. The, the security guards knew me. Uh, had a, I really enjoyed working hard. But in my third year, the company wasn't doing that well, and they went into an austerity program. And you know, at the ripe old age of about I think about twenty three, what do you mean there's no raise and you, you and you're giving me more work to do? And I realized, you know, that's not a good career choice right now to be, you know, in my, not my prime. I was far from my prime, but I didn't feel it was the right career direction. And uh, so that made me leave and, uh, and I went to become a stockbroker, which was a great experience. I did that for three years afterwards. And I really made a lot of money in my first few years. I mean, it was really a successful time, but then the crash of 87 hit. Mm. And that was okay. It was a really interesting working through the crash. And I get, you know, and I had the experience of working through that, which was, you know, something I'll never forget. And the experiences and hearing what's going on live and, you know, in that market. But I I realized that I wasn't building anything. And I saw guys who were a stockbroker and they were in their 50s. They're, you know, my age now. And they had nothing. You know, they lost their job because of cutbacks in the stock brokerage industry and the financial markets. They, you know... They had, they had no value to their career other than a salesperson. Hmm. Not that anything's wrong with being a salesperson, but no value. Even, even selling stocks is a very specific skill set. And when you're fired from a stock brokerage company, it's very hard to get to another one because the word spreads pretty quickly. And I realized I saw some of these poor guys, and I said, you know, I have nothing tangible. I didn't build a, a value for myself. Hmm. And a deal came up to help a, a medical company from Spain get started. I helped the private placement. I asked them if I can join the company. 
as the interim operator. And they, asked, they, they welcomed me because I knew the company inside and out. I had a finance background and they were looking for an operation person. Hmm. And so I helped them out for about a year. And from there, I made some medical contacts in the medical device industry, pretty much took my life savings and uh, got myself a little office, a little place. And the funny part of the whole story is I was pushing hard in medical for about a year. It's a tough industry. Nothing has breaking down old boys network. And I remember as the day is long, I was down to my last, you know, thousand dollars in the bank. And the crazy thing happens. I get a call from a hospital in Nova Scotia. They're looking for a special gynecological couch. And this is where the story gets really funny and very strange. <laughs> and the couch is called the King's couch, which made, didn't make any sense because it's a gynecological couch. I'd be the princess or a queen's couch, but it was called the King's couch. And it was provided by my, one of my suppliers in the United Kingdom. And they gave me my cost. I quoted the hospital. It was like 20, 20 something thousand dollars. But when they gave him the cost, they gave me their selling price in the UK, not my dealer cost. So I took a full list price, marked it up, and quoted it. They bought it for a 20 and change, but my cost was actually about four or five. So that chunk of change I got after the year, the wow. actual like $15,000 I made, I mean, I was starting to consider sending a resume again. One transaction and, and, and saves you. One transaction, someone was smiling upon me, one transaction, allowed me to continue in business. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here today. Wow. It wasn't for that one. That's why you, you, you remember those milestones. You remember yes, your you tipping do. points. Someone yes, says, what's do. my tipping point? My tipping point is a guy on the logical couch. <laughs> that is weird and funny. You kept your promise. So give us a sense of size and scope today at SurgeMed. Today, we're a privately, uh, privately held company. I'm, I'm the sole shareholder of the, of the business. We're just shy of about 100 employees. Mm. And we are in the plus $10 million range. I will say last year was our record year. We did over $40 million, mm. But that was a lot to do with COVID and mm. uh, opportunities that we were able to capitalize on, but also assist our governments, our different governments mm. throughout the world. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work. It was working, uh, I mean, sleeping maybe two, three hours a night for months, trying to put everything together because we had a lot of things that had to change fast. Yeah. So we, we have a great trajectory. And this year, we're probably in the... In the, in the $15 million range today. And our trajectory is even greater than that. And I'm only mentioning our Canadian operation. We also have a factory in, in France as well, mm. which is a separate to this business model, but it, they manufacture a lot of products for us. Mm. They're also a distribution point for us in Europe mm. as well. We're at that level. In fact, we just made an offer on another building. So we're going to have a fourth location. We just acquired it. We purchased another building, about, I think it's about 30,000 square feet. So we're going to be, we wanted to buy a bigger one, but trying to consolidate all the different locations. Right. But it just it wasn't possible. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in renting. Yeah. I like to own my buildings. I don't blame you. And the real estate market is even tougher to figure out today than, than at any well, prior time too. So it, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's pivot a little bit off your personal journey and your company and talk about leadership in general. I'm wondering when as a young man, and you started in business younger than most, but as a young man, what was the first recollection you had of someone leading where you went, that person is a leader and, and you watched them as a leader? You know, my role models are two very different. One was very old school, yeah. my uncle, 
you know, remember going back into the seventies and eighties. Oh yeah. There weren't a whole lot of regulatory rules in place governing our behavior <laughs> and conduct. And you know, there was no, uh, there was a lot of things missing in, in this world and the way people communicated. So I learned my tough knocks from my uncle. Mm. I mean, he was rough around the edges mm. and they, I would introduce myself and someone would say, Oh, is that your uncle? I would say, yes, it is, but don't hold it against me. <laughs> you know, because he was, he, his reputation was, he was uh, tough. Yeah. He, I, I loved his family, respectful, caring, but you know, don't cross him. Yeah. Yeah. A little and, bit, little, little bit of a temper, maybe some colorful language oh, from time to time. Colorful was polite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was very different. And ironically, I, I don't like people that swear. I'm not, you know, swearing jokes, swearing humor, you know, swearing at people is, 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 is just something I, I, I don't, I don't practice. So, but he did teach me the element of when you need to be tough, you need to be tough. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I always prefer being more like a stealth bomber. I don't like to see that. I'd rather not see me coming. If they know you're going to be an ass before they have the meeting with you. Or before they actually, then they're prepared and ready. If they don't see you coming and you turn on them. There's more impact. Yeah. And then my yeah. career at uh, Seagram's dealing with, you know, proper senior executives. I had the opportunity to work with the president and the, the president of Seagram's and many of the vice presidents directly. Even the owner at the time, Charles Rothman. I had the pleasure of meeting him several times. Mm. And I got a flavor of the two polar extremes. <laughs> and, you know... But both, you know, on their own, I guess, had their merits and benefits, but both have serious shortcomings. Mm. You know, my uncle would never survive a day today at this moment. Mm -mm. You know, he wouldn't, he'd be out of business in, in, in no time at all. And the other side, the bureaucratic side is over too much bureaucracy. Yes. You know, you can't survive if you move like an elephant when there's a lot of cheetahs. You need to be nimble out there. If you can't adjust and move, you know, like I was talking the story about the COVID, if we didn't adjust quick, Right. If we were stuck in, the, in, in high levels of multiple bureaucracy, we'd have died. Our sales were plummeting fast. If we did not adapt and make changes to our production and be able to ramp up the products that were needed, I'm telling you, we, I was having discussions with the president of our company, and, and we, I was talking to her and saying, you know, uh, what's the plan? First it was calm, but then when we saw sales drop off about 20 25% leading yeah. to the end, of the end of the month of March, like the last two weeks were down 25%. You know, like I said, that's when costs yeah. overrun profit. And at the time, we didn't know whether that was going to last another week, another quarter, or another year. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. And, yeah, I don't know where you're based, but uh, in Montreal, we're quasi-lockdown. We still have a curfew. Right. Yeah. You know? I'm in Minneapolis, and uh, I was on a call last week with a group of entrepreneurs from all over North America, including probably 25 uh, Canadians and and it sounds like things are loosening up a little more quickly here in the States. Yeah, yeah. The States the states are great. I was actually supposed to go to the U.S. Uh, next week, but I, I canceled it because I just got a fear that we have um, quarantine. You have to go to a hotel for three days and then quarantine for two weeks. And I said, now, as much as I wanted to travel, I'm going to wait until things loosen up. Well, I've been to Montreal many times. And isn't that always been the rule? If you've gone to a Boston Bruins game, you need to quarantine in a hotel for three? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. I, I think I remember that. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 the rule. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Just don't go to a Bruins game and you're fine. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you talked about your brusqueness of your uncle and the bureaucracy of proper executives. Flip the coin for me. What'd you learn from your uncle that you want to emulate as a leader? And what'd you learn from the executives at Seagram's that you want to emulate as a leader? Well, you know what? There, I learned that despite his mannerisms and his, uh, how he conducted himself, he managed to be respected. Hmm. You know, when he walked into the warehouse, people respected him, partly because of the way he may have communicated. There's an element of fear, but also an element of respect. And I learned that you can't be their best friend in business, um, but you could be their friend and be caring, mm-hmm. but know where the line is. And he did take care of his, his employees that were hardworking and loyal incredibly well. Mm. So, and he also did teach me that you need to pay people well and don't try to save if they need 5% to give them 2%, that 3% is going to cost you. Yeah. And he yeah. taught me that he, he really endeared that into me a, a great deal to, you know, to focus on your employees. Cause he said when, cause he also, you know, he was much older and he said he made those mistakes when he was younger, yeah. you know, hire cheap, you know, fire fast. And he said, no, that didn't work until he realized employees are, are, are your, are, are your most valuable asset. And so, so he was pretty rough on the people that he, I, I guess his manner were that if you were not on the A list, you were on his, uh, you know, shit list. There were only two lists. Yeah. 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 So, so, so I really learned that from them. I learned, you know, how important it is to take care of your employees beyond just a simple phone call and really demonstrating that they, they mean something and they do every employee here. And, and I, and I, and I always say this, regularly during our during our, our our quarterly meetings we're announcing someone's 10-year anniversary it's heartfelt you know someone gave me a decade yeah you know and now we have multiple we have, we have like a decade team now we have people to 15 to 20 25 years now yeah i just heard you say something magical that i i want to zero in on you said somebody gave me a decade and i think looking at the employees that have been with you for a long time as though they're giving you a gift of time they could have deployed elsewhere is a really valuable asset. I really appreciate you pointing that out. That means a lot to people. And I don't think many of us pay enough attention to that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we we have, we have one employee that's our bookkeeper. She just hit 19 years. Mm. And even now that my hairs on my neck stand up when I think about it, that, She's with me for 19 years. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, we have a lot, 10, 15, and 20 plus years. And we would not be where we are today if they weren't as loyal and they, if they kept switching them out and, and, and the cord just kept changing. And that, like I said, it's, it's time is the greatest gift we all have. You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to view ourselves as more alone than we really are. Because as the 100% owner of your company, you feel alone in that role, but your 19-year bookkeeper has seen the twists, the turns, the scary moments, your oh, highest yeah. highs as a leader, your lowest lows as a leader, and and for them to stick with you is truly something special and, and worth recognizing. Oh, yeah, and, and we do. We really we really do our best to uh, recognize it. It's an incredible uh, thing when you, have, when, you see, when you have that much time yeah. from somebody. And it's a that's it's, neat. It, it changes everything, you know. That's neat. So what are the most important leadership lessons you learned from the Seagram's experience? What are, what are you hoping to emulate as a leader based on what well, you learned there? There was structure. Yeah. 
you know, I learned structure. I learned people have to have a job, they have to have a description, they have to have a role. Whether I implemented that well, I will say no. That was one of the things the EOS corrected us on, is that we, we had job descriptions, we had structure, we had a, a hierarchy chart, but was it well run, well managed? No. Yeah. But I did learn that aspect from them, that structure aspect, and, and playing by the rules, you know, although big companies are guilty of doing all kinds of things nowadays, but we, we, it taught us the, uh, yeah, it made me compose a, an employee manual mm-hmm. of conduct. Yeah. It made us, and this was well before it was acquired by ISO or, or even as an EOS model. It was, we were trying to stay ahead of that curve. Yeah. That was one thing we tried to deploy as much as we can. Yeah. The, you know, when you, when you go back to the clarity about people's roles, I think there's such a thing as so much structure, it all becomes blurry again. Yeah and, yeah, there, and there's such a thing as no structure whatsoever, and it's the wild, wild west. And what we're really trying to do in EOS is bring a little bit of structure, discipline, accountability. But it it's got to be clear and simple, um, because the more volume Absolutely. you throw at people, the more confusing it is. Yeah, so, no, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, it's always a balancing act. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, good stuff. Can you remember a major success along your journey to build this amazing company you've built? What, what's the thing you've celebrated the most at SurgeMed over the years? Well, I'd say the biggest celebration came when we broke 100,000 in a single month. Mm. That was a, you know, it's, it's cracking that, you know, you know, knowing you're on track now to having a, a million dollar revenue company. Yeah. That changes things. And then when we hit the two and three million, it was, I, I was really proud. Those are big moments. But I'm going to say that the, the biggest aha moment or the biggest change for us was really moving heavily into manufacturing. Mm. Most of our competitors were subcontracting to other manufacturers. Mm. Whereas I guess that's the other experience I got from my, my uncle was, you know, not being afraid to buy machinery and, uh, and, and have things manufactured even still in Canada, which were, you know, were pretty much a rare breed. It's not many medical device companies based in Canada where we manufacture over 80% of our products here in Montreal. And manufacturing to me is just, you know, creating something and adding our own uh, vertical and horizontal integration was just a great accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It felt really, it felt really proud to be able to take all the raw material and come up with a finished product. Yeah, that's really that, cool. that was, yeah, that was a big, that was a big thing. What, what was it that convinced you to take that plunge? What, what was the driving thought behind it? Cutting costs. Mm-hmm. Reducing our costs, you know, uh, how, do, how do I separate myself from everyone else? Yeah. And also, I, I guess the other side of the coin is the more you manufacture on your own, the less you're beholden to others. That's right. And God knows we've all had bosses or how many people who are listening to this have two key suppliers and you lose one of your suppliers yeah. because they were purchased by another company and they already have a network. Sometimes so now the other key supplier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is terrifying. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Or even worse, your competitor bought right. your supplier. That's right. And now you're in the yeah. trouble. Yeah. Or, you know, like other companies just have one big customer at Walmart and they decide that SKU is no longer attractive to them. That's right. So what we're very proud of is that we uh, minimize our risk for the supply chain. And more importantly, not one single customer represents more than 2% of our revenue. Mm. Mm. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing when you can fire a customer. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, you know, it really is. We're not beholding to anybody. Yeah, that's great. That's great. If I were to ask the people you spend the most time with in the business to describe your two or three best attributes as a leader, what would they say? You know, I don't often think of myself that way. I, I guess it'd be that I'm very open and honest. And they will say one thing about me, and I said, if someone lies to me and they get caught in a lie, that person has to quit. 
Mm-hmm. Because like, you know, I can't come back. That's yeah. one thing I don't tolerate. And even other employees will tell that person that wasn't lying that you should leave. No They'll kidding. Wow. Yeah. If you can lie to my face. Yeah. And you will never recover it. from that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a bad character trait. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to recover from life because yeah. I try to be as open and honest as possible. Yeah. And if I don't get it back and someone lies, you know, costs us money or a really bad decision, but they didn't connote. I'd rather you own up to your, I can forgive a mistake. How's that? Yeah. I, and I've forgiven some really pretty big mistakes. I've forgiven guys who made thirty, forty thousand dollars mistakes yeah. and they stayed with us for 10 years afterwards. Because they owned because it. I know they owned it. Yeah. That's good stuff. If you're, teammates were bold enough to share with me a couple things they wish were different about you, what do you think they'd say? Well, this is partly George's fault now. I'm not here often. I'm, I'm not here often enough. Okay. All right. Yeah, more I'm, time. Not, I'm not around. They want you in the office more more than you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, that, that, that to me, I think is the big one. Or, or I guess sometimes they want me to focus more. Like I don't I focus on what I want to focus on ah. so they can send me emails and I don't respond to them quick enough. Got it. Got it. So but that's because of George. That's because of EOS is that I have my own set of priorities and I manage my time to do what I need to work on. Not because it says they, that the intensity that, you know, you think you're out, but they put, they're trying to pull you back in. Yeah. So I work so hard to get out. Yeah. I don't want to go back in. So I'm one of several visionaries who got exactly the opposite feedback from uh, leadership teams, we'd like you to spend less time in the office. <laughs> so, so congratulations, yeah. Mitch, for being more valuable <laughs> than me. But I'm sorry, uh, because yeah, no. because I think you <sighs> prefer the other. So yeah, no, I, exactly. But no, they uh, I think it's my more relaxed state. And they know I'm not as I'm not, I'm not near as nervous or crazy as they used to be. The business is in, in, has moved into solid footing. The leadership team has taken right. ownership. And I don't want to be dragged back into it. Well, the needle we're all trying to thread is how do we make ourselves available as an asset that can be utilized by our leadership team members, but not meddle, for lack of a better term, not seize control. And that's a tough, you know, there is some penduluming that has to go on where you're too disengaged and then you get sucked back in and then you're too engaged. and, And so it is awkward we're all on that journey together. And, you know, I want you and, and everybody else who's listening that's dealing with that to know it's not easy for anybody. We'll find the right way. It absolutely way. isn't. It really, it really isn't. And uh, they would like me around. Well, I, I think it's more of the presence is that I, I to go and talk to other employees and the morale and, you know, more of the motivator than anything else. Yeah, that's great. Can you think of one big mistake you'd like to have over again? A decision you made or a, a project you kind of ran into the muck, anything you wish you could do over again as a leader? As a leader, I'm going to say, I wish I was better structured as I am now. Like what we're, what we're doing now isn't reinventing the wheel. I wish I had better structure and organization at least 10 years ago, Hmm. because I really think we'd be in a whole other element. I recognize my limitation was I was able to bring the company to one level. I couldn't get past it. I was stuck. And I let my stubbornness not relent and not hire some heavy guns, not hire some you know, people who are, who are really smarter than me mm-hmm. and have a lot of other experience I could, that they could bring in. And that's where I think I made my biggest mistake yeah. is I, I didn't invest in other people who can help us. Yeah. You, you viewed yourself as central to more 
deliverables and more decisions than was healthy for the business. And as a result, that was a constraint. Is that what I hear yeah. you saying? Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. You know, how, how many owners of a business or, or, or CEOs all of a sudden are looking at a bill on the desk for $1,000 and right. start calling the plumber themselves asking, why is that bill $1,000? It should be 800. That's right. Yeah. You know, and then you realize that just, you know, a, either get someone else to do it or just pay the bill. Yeah. And so, Mitch, my answer to your question, how many business owners are doing that is almost all of us. And yeah. because I've been there too, and everybody listening has been there. And some somebody who's listening right now is also looking at a stack of invoices on their desk and saying, Oh my God, I gotta get somebody else to do this work for sure. Which is yeah, why no, which is why we do this podcast, because we all need to know this is normal stuff and we're all gonna grow together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, you just you gotta figure a way, and this is very hard. This is probably one of the hardest things that to accept other people's mistakes. And it will cost, but what is the actual cost to you and your business? Yeah. Empower your employees. If you if you don't have the trust to empower your employees, you have the wrong employees. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know? That's right. That's right. And that's a that's a dangerous three legged stool. You need the right employees. You yeah. need to be able to trust, and then you need to do it. And those exactly. three things can all break independently or together and and it is scary that is a that's the letting go of the vine constraint and i love it one of my uh, esteemed colleagues one of george's esteemed colleagues stood up at our quarterly meeting of implementers several years ago and reminded us all that peter drucker once was famously quoted as saying you know the the bottleneck is always at the top of the bottle yes it's a helpful well helpful reminder no, exactly. So if I would have realized that earlier, I think we would probably be 10 times the size. Yeah. Yeah. I really believe it because as I said, you know, we spoke earlier about my trajectory, you know, we're, we're, you know, 18 to 25% per year for the last three years and nothing's really changed other than better management structure. Well, you know, there's, you know, a, there's than, always the next seven years. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, listen, uh, like you, I, I think our, our gray hair speaks for itself, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, we're going to talk about sliced bread and walking uphill to school both ways here in a minute if we're not careful. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, no, you know, we want to find ourselves in a good position, yeah. you know, and, and, I th and I think that I could have been better. Yeah. than we are today. Yeah. Like, I mean, a lot better. Like, I've always wondered, why did some of my competitors go from 10 million to 100 million so fast? Yeah. And I didn't think they were smarter than me. And now I know why. Yeah. They were better operators than yeah. I was. A little more structure, a little more discipline. Yeah. 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 For sure. It certainly wasn't for lack of work. You know, that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, here's a question for you. With operations and customers all over the world, do you sense any differences between leadership styles, what works, what doesn't work from country to country, region to region, or do you think leadership is leadership no matter where you're located? I would say it's very different. Because Cult, different cultures, if you're going to, like when I'm in Japan, it's a very different sense of leadership in Japan. It's a very structured operation. I thought the Germans had a very structured business. Uh, when I went to any of my suppliers, my, my customers in Germany, their offices, their filing systems. I mean, if you saw it, you'd say, this is so organized. I mean, they can find anything. Japan made that made the Germans look like, you know, amateurs. <laughs> but then when you go to other some other countries, England, not as much. But I will say that the, the leadership styles 
we're very casual. We're very different. The UK and very casual leadership with, my, with the people I've dealt with. Very friendly. Always want to go have a drink. Mm-hmm. Where Japanese organization structure very respectful. People spoke extremely respectfully to each other. You didn't get a sense of any casual, very casual communication. Everything very formal. Yeah. Very, very formal. Like I said, but it just varies in different parts of Europe, Asia. You go to Eastern Europe is very casual. Eastern Europe, very casual management styles. Mm. In fact, they're probably a little more old school than we. They're, yeah. they're probably they're they're still in the in the eighties. Yeah, I may head to Eastern Europe when this podcast is over. The more formal, the more nervous I get. Um, yeah, I, you know, all entrepreneurs tend to prefer a little bit of chaos from time to time. So I went to visit my customer in Japan and I'm, I'm trying to get him to go out or trying to have some fun. And, you know, when I finally break him down, then it's fun. Then we have a lot of fun. Yeah. But when he's in front of his staff, it's, you know, I'm like, get rid of the employees. Let's go. Let's go talk. <laughs> then we have a great conversation. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And then any common threads, like no matter what the cultural norms if you're not this, that, and the other thing as a leader, you're going to fail. Is there anything like that that you've noticed around the globe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's managing employees. Yeah. We all sit around and often talk about how to organize the business, how to manage your team, how to get your team to deliver, or how do we get, you know, what do we tools do we need to get the product to market? Those are all very standard issues. Like we all sit around and complain, you know, about some problems, employees, or how yeah. would you handle this? I've been in business now for almost 30 years. So a lot of our international distributors have become friends Mm. and they were my network. Right. Like if I had a problem, I would call Lou in Zurich or Chirashi in London, you know, or, you know, Marcus in Austria. We would make these, I would make these phone calls. They would call me. We have had regular conversations about how do we solve this problem or, or what's your idea on this product? And the common ground was we all wanted to succeed. We all wanted to have successful businesses and not work as hard as we're working. Right. And figuring out exactly the right formula for how to reach each of the unique animals that is one of your employees to get the most out of them. You know, and there, I, I think one of the things I've noticed is there is no one size fits all approach. The best leaders no. and managers are the ones able to really discern what motivates each individual and reach them on their level. And gosh, the amount of inquiry and energy that requires exceeds most of our capacities, right? That's why we Absolutely. get stuck. That's why we get frustrated. So that's really interesting. One last question before we close shop and let you get back to your business. If you were speaking to a young leader on the start of their entrepreneurial journey, think way back to your 12, 13, 14 year old self, and you had to give them one piece of advice that would help them show up as their best leader every day, what's the most important thing you think they need to hear? Don't lose focus. Stay the course. You're going to have a lot of people tell you, no or discourage you if you believe in it work hard do your best try to make it happen so many people told me it wasn't working to stop to not push finding the inner strength to continue when you're fighting the odds also you have to know when to quit too mm-hmm. you have to know when it's time to you know like i said when i didn't make that last sale i was at the end of my rope you have to know when's it time to you know push and when's the time to quit i find a lot of people out there are, are, are quick to discourage mm-hmm. Well, I tell my son, who's 
unfortunately, he's got my curse of entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> he's already on to his second business. Awesome. He'll find the one that works. And he's done fairly well in his, in his couple of endeavors, but hasn't found his perfect one yet. But going back to what we said is that trying to encourage him as much as possible and also tell him, like he just said, never give up. Yeah is that you really got to push and you got to be better than your competitors. You got to find your differentiating niche. If you don't find something differentiating, then you're not going to succeed. Yeah. If you're going to just be the, if, if you're going to be the next guy who can just paint a house, yeah. what makes you the painter they're going to select? You got to find what tool you're going to market. That's going to make that customer select you over somebody else. Yeah. love it. You know, in your never give up thing, I think, one thing you talked about earlier is when one door closes on a business because maybe you don't have a differentiating niche, it isn't compelling, you're, yeah. you're one of a million people who could do the same service, that doesn't mean you quit. That means you need to find another door to open. Exactly. That's my point exactly. Is that we, is, you know, it, it took three businesses before I got here. Right. You know, before I found the one that worked for me. Yeah. And... The first one's not going to be God willing. It is. And I wish I won the world of success, but it often takes a few doors to open before you uh, find the right one to walk through. It yeah. takes time. Yeah. Well, failure is the fastest and most permanent teacher. And nobody knows that more than an entrepreneurial leader. That's for sure. So Exactly. You know. Well, Mitch, this has been fabulous. If our listeners want to learn more about your company or about you personally, what's the best place for them to go? They can go to our website at uh, www.surgemed.com, S-U-R-G-M-E-D.com. Awesome. Or they can reach out to me at, at my email address, if they like, at mgoldberg at surgemed.com. And we'll put those details in the show notes. I, I want to say thank you. I looked forward to and enjoyed this conversation as much as anything I've done on this podcast. You're a fabulous human being and a lot of fun to talk to. Thank you for being so generous with your time and oh. helping us all become better leaders. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you virtually and I look forward to you know, staying in touch. Yeah. And I hope we get to see each other in person real soon when uh, when things lighten up a little bit cross border Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again, right. Mitch. If you got value from today's episode, do me a favor. Share the episode with a friend. If you know someone who would benefit from the conversation I had today, make sure to share it with them.